All right, yeah, okay. February 18th, 2018, Lesson 17. Here we are, getting started again with Satan's attempts to tempt our Lord. And we got started in uh, Matthew chapter 4 last week. We looked at verse 1 and verse 2. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness for the temptation to be tempted by the devil. And we simply noted that it was the Spirit that led him up there and not the draw of Satan, certainly not the draw of sin. And we also saw that Christ had been fasting or yeah, hadn't, hadn't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights. And he is weak in his humanity, in his flesh, and having put aside um, his prerogatives as God in flesh, Son of God, that uh, He was being obedient to the Father in that. And behind uh, that background comes these three temptations that we look at. Now we noted also that uh, from what verses in John and Luke that it would be apparent that He was already being tempted. They indicate that the temptations had already started. And yet we have these, these three temptations which... Uh, we look at and we understand that they do represent broader categories, if you will, of sin. We talked about that from First John, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. They're not in that exact order here in Matthew, but they are present. So we look at that and we begin looking this morning with this first temptation. And I want you to be mindful this morning. This is not just something that we look at, obviously, for for history's sake or whatever. Uh, but we need to be pretty forensic about it. I mean, this was put here for us to teach us. We have Christ's example in this. This is the, the Word of God that the Holy Spirit wants to make known to us because it should be high on our priority list to understand the tactics, if you will, how Satan tempts us and how we are to respond and it's really quite simple here. I mean, it's complex and difficult when you get into the, to working it out, you know, our response to temptation. But what we're supposed to do and what resources we have and the example that we have pretty clear in the Word of God. So I'm thankful for that this morning as we look at it. We know in general that what Satan was trying to do with our Lord was just simply to tempt him to disregard the providential love and care and provision of the Heavenly Father. He wanted him to move away from that. He wanted him later to put his Heavenly Father to the test, to put him on display. This again would be him stepping away from what God has prepared for him. Uh, And that's what he wanted him to do, just to step away from the Father's will, from the Father's way, and literally, as we'll see with the the last temptation, embrace Satan. Embrace the world. And Satan tries to do with him just what he does with us. His greatest tool. What would you say? I won't give it to you. I'll ask you. What's his greatest tool? What tool does he like to use more than anything? What do you think? Deception. Deception. Right. Make something look like Something that it's not. It's the very nature of sin and our sinful response, as James tells us, because he gives us those examples there. He says it's like a fish hook, you know. 
The fish goes to grab something that he thinks is going to be food, and it turns out where the fish becomes the food. Okay, it's that kind of thing. A great deception, and we know that he's a great liar and a murderer. We'll look at that later as we get to it. But I love to bring out this particular scripture when we're looking at Satan's temptations, because in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul talks about Satan there. And in those scriptures there is included the phrase, he says, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We are not ignorant of his schemes, Satan's schemes. Now that should give us great hope. That should give us uh, some encouragement right there. That is to say, through an understanding of the scriptures, through studying the scriptures, through doing exactly what we're doing right here as we focus upon the temptation of Christ, we can learn much more how to be strong in times of temptation. We can be mindful of the devil's tactics. We can find how we're supposed to respond each and every time. This is a great thing, and, and obviously that's, that's why it's here. And that's why we're to examine it and to look at it in great detail, to take it serious. Now look, we're in a, we're in a day, and I say we churches throughout, Christians throughout, we're in a day where you can go to many, many churches and you never hear anything about sin. I had a friend that I ate lunch with this week. He told me that they have a, a new pastor, and he said, I hadn't heard the gospel yet. Really? And he certainly hasn't heard anything about sin. Okay? I've read materials and, and looked at items where churches you know, are claiming to be this and be that, and they're trying to draw people from different ways, different means. You can see clearly the influence of the world in the church, trying to appeal to people's comforts in order to get them into church. And I read a statement one time uh, where it said, uh, you know, uh, just uh, you know, come as you are. I saw a sign that said, you won't even feel like you're in church. I saw that before. I saw that on a poster sticking up on the side of the road one time up in North Ackworth. You won't even feel like you're in church. Well, that's a slippery slope. I can guarantee you that. So we see this. One of the greatest things that we can do is to help people see their sin. The Bible teaches us that we're we're to do that, not by hitting people with a big heavy Bible or coming down on people apart from love, but it tells us plainly, what is it, Ephesians 4.15, that we are to speak the truth in love. We're to do that. And certainly when we talk about our need for a Savior and what Christ has done for us, how our life has been changed. You know, people can say what they want, but unless they're just way on down the road with their sinfulness and so forth, they can identify with sinful burden. They know what that is. They may not know what to call it, but they know the discomfort of it. They know intuitively that there's a judgment. They understand that. And how encouraging is it to hear of someone who's experienced that, but yet now has been relieved of that. And... uh You can see that in their face. You can see it in their countenance. You can see it in what's important to them now. So, to bring us back to where we are in the Scripture here, this is is what this is about. This is why we look at this and study not only about Christ's provision, that He was where He was supposed to be, doing what He was supposed to be doing. This was necessary for Him to do this. But it's so helpful for us. So helpful 
because we all continue to struggle to some degree with sin and with the flesh. In verse 3 of chapter 4, it reads, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Right off the bat here, we see this appeal, this temptation, if you will, from Satan before Christ, that we would line up under lust of the flesh, wouldn't we? Fulfill your fleshly desire. Go ahead and, and uh, partake, you know. Use your skills, your abilities, apart from God, apart, apart from what He has set for you. Go ahead and do that, because if you perish, who knows how Satan hit him? Who knows what all he said to him? We know what Christ's response is going to be, and we'll see Satan key on that in just a moment for the second temptation. But here he comes, and he puts this temptation before him. And this word, the tempter, is the word pirazo, and it's, it's a descriptive name for Satan. And it's really the same derivative of the same word as tempted up in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. That's what he is. It's not just his name. That's what he is. He's the tempter. He's temptation. He is. He's not just a liar. He is a lie. He embodies that. And he says he, he casts some doubt, or he attempts to, to, to throw some doubt in there. He says, if you are the Son of God, and of course we're to take that word if here, I understand, as since, you know, but it draws what follows into question. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Just do that. No, he's not going to do that. Make it happen is the word. Gnomia. To perform or to, or to come to pass. Make it happen. Put on a display here. Satisfy your own needs. You have the power to do it. I think one of the things that we struggle with a lot of times in our life is we do have the power to do things at certain times. And we don't count, we don't consider the timing of what we're doing. Or we don't consider specifically, is it God's will that I do this right now, that I say this right now, that I become involved in this. And it says that we're not seeking His will. We might just be seeking opportunity. So it would appear here that Satan goes right to the weak spot with him. Forty days in the wilderness of Judea, a, a desert place. And we talked briefly last week about this going without food and then going without water. And, of course, as I said, continuing with other temptations that were no doubt there. He's hitting him where it hurts. He's hitting him where he thinks perhaps he's the weakest. I couldn't help but think of Genesis chapter 25, you know, where you've got Esau there who comes in and he's just worn out. I mean, literally, the picture is that his fleshly needs, even though hunger is a legitimate need and being part, he's, he's just worn out and that's dominating him right now. And there's a lesson in that because that is the potential of the flesh. If we don't do what Paul says, he says, I... I beat my body. Number one, he recognizes the temptations. He recognizes the flesh. He doesn't run from it. And he brings it into subjection, he says. 
He brings it under subjection. We can do that through the Word of God. We can do that. Our faith will allow us to do that if we stand upon His Word. I'm thankful for that because that's, there's great, great strength in that. So he's hitting Christ where he thinks he is the weakest. And it does remind me of Esau, who sold his birthright for, it says, a pottage or a bowl of soup, a bowl of stew to satisfy his fleshly needs. He wanted, Satan wanted Jesus to act independently of God. He wanted his power put on display, and he wouldn't do it. We can compare Matthew 27, 40 with what he's saying there because he says, if you are the Son of God. You know, in, in Matthew 27, this is where Christ is on the cross and they're standing around there looking at him. And they're saying, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Throwing it all into question. So you got the same kind of scenario. You might say, well, this is much greater. Christ is on the cross. Well, really? I mean... If he'd have stepped away from the Father's will to any degree at any time, it would have been detrimental, absolutely detrimental. The Bible says he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And this is important for you and I as well. We've got to be willing to go there. We've got to understand what the Word says about temptation, the fact that it will come, the fact that Christ Himself said you're going to have tribulation. Paul said we're, we're born for this. This is part of the game. This is what happens because your very life, the fact that you're filled with the Spirit of God is contradictory to the rest of the world. Contradictory. <clears throat> Excuse me. You've been listening to the news lately about Pence's statements, our vice president's statement. He, he said something about Jesus talking to him. And they have just gone crazy with that, saying that that is the type of talk that a mentally deranged person uses. They want to take that and equate it. And here we've got another tragic example down in Florida, 17 students killed. And what does that guy say? Voices told him to do this. And you've got these pundits on TV who are trying to make a parallel here and just trying to rip up um, Christians and those who do, in fact, believe. Uh, I saw one lady on Fox News, you know, for the Catholics, what, last week it was Ash, was it Ash Wednesday? Yes, the day that happened. She's there on TV with her little ash cross on her helmet, on her helmet, on her, (laughs) sorry lady, on her forehead, excuse me. Uh, And it has created an environment for people to step forward, and people have, and you've seen a few people that you might not know say, wait a minute, I, I understand this fully, we do pray to Christ, and He does speak to us, and I just kept waiting for somebody to say, He speaks to us through His Word. Say it, somebody, and I hadn't heard it yet. I want somebody to say it. You've got this national forum, but is this not what happens? And you've heard me say it over and over again, folks. There's a battle going on. We're we're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of it. There'll be a day coming, the Word of God says. Listen, there's a day coming when those who kill you think that they do God a service. 
Now, we've been there before, right? That's Paul's day, right? Paul thought he was doing the right thing. He thought, he thought it was right to go in and do this. He stood there while they stoned Stephen to death. He did that. He thought he was right. But he was wrong. And the only thing that can open up the eyes of the blind in that regard is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That's what we pray. That's what we protect. That's what we live out. If you are the Son of God, they said there in Matthew 27, 40, come down from the cross. But He didn't. He didn't come down. And He is the Son of God. And He subjected Himself to the temptations and obedience to God the Father. He suffered. He chose to do that because it was the Father's plan. So we can move to verse 4-4 where Christ gives His first response here to the first temptation. It says, But He answered and said, It is written... Yes, amen. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 there. Wow. Now Christ is going to do this in response to each of these three temptations. Each and every response is going to begin with, it is written. And what a wonderful Wonderful example for us. We must go to the Word of God. And it's very simple to direct you this morning in a manner in which you do not need to be directed, and that would be to Psalm 119. (laughs) You want to get fired up about the Word of God? Then go to the portion in the Bible. It's like no other where it is exalted and glorified like no other place in Scripture. In Psalm 119... Thank God that the Spirit moved upon David to pour his heart out over the Word of God. How rich that is. And we find those wonderful, wonderful verses there. Thy word, O Lord, have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin sin against you. It's a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. And all the different metaphors that are used for the Word of God. And then our precious Christ Jesus is indeed the Word made flesh. That's what He is. We have that. That's why Paul can say in Romans 1, we don't have an excuse. And he's talking about nature. But the Word of God, we have it. And it's easily, easily mixed with our faith. and must happen that way if we're to believe. We've got to have both. We've got to have the faith. And we've got to have the Word of God. Christ responds a number of places in Scripture. I, and <clears throat> I went to John and I looked in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 34, over this issue about food and so forth. And apparently Christ had found some sort of teachable moment, I guess you could say, with His disciples in John four thirty-four, Because they're just simply trying to get Him to eat something. They've been watching him and looking at him. And, you know, Christ was, he was an example in that he would get up early and go pray his you know, his life, his, his, his appetites, if you will, uh, were in order. And they were trying to get him to eat. And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And even in that, he's our example. You know, we can easily focus upon other things. Things that we know are the necessities of life. But between our ears, we need to keep them in their proper place. 
And Christ uses this to teach them. It's almost as if He's saying, look, you need, to, you need to not worry about that so much as whether or not we're doing the will of God, whether or not you're doing the will of God in order to accomplish His work. And then it follows on a couple of chapters later in John chapter 6, verse 38. He says again, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And there he's speaking to the Jews about his particular mission. This is what he's focused upon. This is what his drive is throughout the baptism, throughout the testings, throughout his life. And then lastly, in John chapter 8, verse 28, it says, So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And of course, the He is italicized, so you know what He's saying and how they're receiving it. You will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He's focused upon God's will, God's way. He's going to do what His Father wants Him to do, period. How much of our temptation, how much of our battle can be boiled down simply to whether we want Christ, whether we want the Word of God, or we want, in this case, bread. We want to satisfy the flesh in some way. And our heart has to be clean. It has to be clear before God in that regard if we're to hear Him and to hear Him clearly. He says, it is written. In the Greek, it's the word grapho. It means to engrave, to write, to describe, to put it down. We would might say to carve it in stone. That's the picture that's given here. It is written. It's settled. It's the written Word of God, which will never, ever pass away. And He responds with this, as I said, each and every time. He's our example. We must respond to the flesh. We must respond to difficulty in this life with the Word of God. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. That's what, and it's how we live. It's how we know God. It's how we best get to know Him today is through His Word. It reveals His will for us. Christ, again, our example, He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Lord, as you know, Not as I will, but as you will. We do have a will, do we not? We see it when we forensically go and we decipher salvation. We look at the the, uh, requirement of knowledge, you know, that word is gnosis. We look at the will and we even look at emotion, you know, that which comes from within us that allows us to move forward, that, that allows us to move upon our conviction. It's from our heart. It's from our spirit. That's what's, what's engaged. And Christ was our example when it comes to the will. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And the Bible says there in the garden, I mean, he's being tempted here 40 days, four nights. But you know, that's where it says that he was sweating blood. He was sweating blood. It's not some other way to, to look at that. And I've read these things, you know, just like you read about descriptions of the cross and what happened to Christ physically. All that's interesting and accurate, I'm sure. Well, here, you know, you can read those kind of things and understand that it's possible to do that, to, to be so intense, so tore up physically. 
you know, so constrained that capillaries literally pop and, and bust, you know, particularly in the smallest areas, you know, around the eyes and so forth, sweating drops of blood. He's endured it. Remember, we went back and we looked at Hebrews and we saw that there's not a single temptation that he's not familiar with. And per- perhaps the most important and compelling thing out of last week's lesson, if you recall, was when we looked at the fact that Christ experienced temptation at its fullest to a much greater degree than we could ever experience it. And we said, well, how is that possible? Because there are times when you and I yield. And when we yield, the temptation stops. Christ never yielded. He got the full brunt. He got the full load of temptation. Listen, in, I'm going to fall down in a minute. Every temptation. Every single one. And yet, He could not yield because He was the Son of God. And yet, at the same time, He experienced this. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He can. Yeah. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15 say, Come now, you who say tomorrow or today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, James says, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Is that your nature today? Is that what comes out of you when you're making decisions, when you're planning your day You know, What is the purpose of your day? Just to get through things? Or are you even cognizant of the needs of people at the, the laundromat or at the grocery store or that random phone call that you get any of these places? What is your life about that day? With all these things that you have to do, all these things that you have to be engaged in, places that you have to go, what is your ultimate motivation? Is it to be used by God? Is it to be a service in your fellowship, to be a witness, to evangelize your neighborhood, whatever. Because of the sake of Christ, it has everything to do, our will, with how we view the work and will of God in our life on a daily basis. It's so easy to fall in that humdrum rut, if you will. And when we live literally live apart from Christ, we don't maintain that clear vision about our life being His life. He's indwelt us for a purpose. Paul says twice in Corinthians, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. You don't own yourself anymore. He owns you. But the good news is He's going to take care of you. He's going to strengthen you. He's not going to call you to do anything that He doesn't equip you to do. And we can rest in Him. Is that our desire? Because of what He's done for us. Because of the great potential that our life has for the cause of Christ. That's what we want to think about. I think we can do the second temptation. Chapter 4, verse 5. The second temptation. And I think we can see, that in part, it deals with the pride of life. Because it says, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now he's getting ready to hit him with the second 
temptation. Of course, the holy city is going to be Jerusalem, and it remains the worship capital of the world today, arguably. Some might say Mecca is that, but no, it's Jerusalem. And it says it took him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And what I read about this, there's really no certain way to know what that is or where it is in particular because of the the word usage there. But uh, I know the commentary said that it could be literally the roof that extended over, quite frankly, Herod's portico after the reconstruction of the temple, which he had given orders to reconstruct. And then there was a great wall there. I get the picture like it was a retaining wall. It could have been there because that might have been the highest point. The historian Josephus writes that the highest point on that wall was 450 feet in Jerusalem when it stood. So that would have been quite a structure. 400 feet. I mean, a football field is 300 feet. Okay, so that's 450 feet. That's, that's quite, a, quite a height. But at any rate, through some miraculous way, he takes him up to this point, puts him in a position where... You know, he can see all this as if he doesn't already know that, the one who created the world. I mean, he can see all of this. (coughs) And you can make all kind of analogies. We get put in places in our life where it would seem, seem that certain opportunities are available for us if we'll just reach out and grab them. I know in my life it often comes and has come in the past in opportunities for a profession or certain kinds of work, you know, and how... Um, you know, rewarding that could be, you know, either financially or otherwise. And all that has to be weighed against, well, is it God's will? You know, and you know that happens each and every time. And I know some of you have gone through that here lately. Job opportunities are afforded to you, and yet you have to sit down and say, what is the right thing for me right now at this time? And more specifically, what is God's will in this matter? What's best for my family? What is He going to do, you know? We have to make those decisions and move, move forward. Our motivation is key there, though. I hope you would agree. But Christ responds in verse 6. It says, and he said to him, no, I'm sorry, Satan. He's taken him up there. And now Satan lowers the boom on him. He says, if you are, once again, he says, if, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, cast yourself down, he says, for it is written. Oh, really? Now we got Satan talking <laughs> from Scripture. It is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now Satan's doing the talking here, and he's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. What a prideful thing to do. Would you not agree? Boy, that would certainly draw attention. For Christ to cast Himself off in the presence of, of so many, to cast himself off, and then right before he hits the ground, it's just like a cartoon. You know, it's just like, uh, he just kind of lights on the ground. Okay? The angels will bear you up with their hands. This is a promise from God. It's okay. It's in the Bible, he probably said. And he's quoting it here. Wow. I heard a guy say one time, he said, look, always remember, he said, Satan doesn't want to destroy the church. He wants to join the church. Of course, that is his ultimate goal. He wants to do that by joining. He wants to do that by taking the word, the word of God, the precious word of God, and twist it around. And he used the same word when he used the same word, grapho. It's the same word that's translated here. 
but it's Satan speaking now. It is written. He goes back and he begins talking like Jesus. How do we know the difference? How can we tell the difference? When we even read something in the Word that seems to, pardon me, seems to be supporting an understanding that we might have, a will that we might have, that's really not lined up with God or His Word. But once we just see the slightest little possibility that the Word interpreting in that fashion is going to support what I actually want, how tempting is it to take that and run with it? Satan knows that. Just bring a little doubt on the Word of God. We can go all the way back to the garden and find this, right? For he's there before Eve. And he says, now wait a minute. Is that really what God said? There's nothing new. There's no new tactic. No wonder Paul could say we're not ignorant of his devices. And when something gets in your life that starts causing you question to question the clear word of God, beware. Beware. Because he can do his work there. It is written. I don't like and rarely use a, an example from, from a TV or a movie, but I was had uh, literally I had finished studying and I was sitting in my chair and I clicked the TV on and what pops up? You ever seen this movie, The Book of Eli? You know that movie? Anybody ever seen that movie? A Denzel Washington movie where the bombs have gone off and he's like some modern day prophet to take the Bible out to the West Coast so that it can be recopied and redistributed. God is, the message is God has protected his word and he still has a prophet or whatever. But my point is, there's another guy, there's an evil guy looking for this book. He's desperately looking for a Bible. He's got these road crews that go out and run up and down the road, you know, like Mad Max robbing people and killing people, trying to find a Bible. That's what the movie's about because he understands the power of belief, the power that's in that word. Now, he don't understand it, you know, from a Holy Spirit perspective. He wants the power. And he says, if I can get this, I've got... The power, because he knows how to tweak it and to get people to do things. That's exactly what Satan was doing here. And he still uses that tactic today. Confuse people about the Word of God and what it says. Just confuse them. We find examples in the Bible where people want to latch onto that power. The first one that comes to my mind would be from Acts 8.19, Simon Magnus, remember? Of course, the emphasis there is the Holy Spirit. But it says when he saw that through the laying on of hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he said, well, I, give, give me that power. I want that power. And the Bible's clear. He wanted to make money off of it. Just take something good and implement it wrongly for your own desires. We have a lot of that going on today. It's nothing new. Nothing new. We're not ignorant of his devices. That's what happens. So the first temptation dealt with a need that already existed, a lack of food. It already existed. In this second one, a need had to be created. And this is what Satan does. He can take a legitimate need, a legitimate desire, something we would even say is God-given, and he can also enter our minds with illegitimate desires. He can take something good, 
and turn it in to something bad. We all love to eat. We all have to eat. That can be used against us, right? We're an adult class. God created us with a desire for sex, but God's got a plan for that. He's got a time for that. He knows how that's supposed to be implemented and satisfied in our life according to His Word. But that can get taken out of proportion. That can turn into something bad, can it not? Take anything that He's given us. And the devil can take it and turn it around. So the primary goal there was some type of sensationalism. Something to feed the flesh. Something to feed the flesh of the onlookers as well. Christ says that it's an evil and adulterous generation that craves a sign. You want me to get up here and throw myself off the temple? For the sake of what? To feed this desire in others? You can read about it, Matthew 12, 39. He restates it in the 16th chapter of Matthew. We'll get there eventually. But these kind of signs, if you will, they really only produce a desire for more signs. They never, ever satisfy. And why is that? Because the unbelieving heart is not satisfied through that type of response or that type of feeding. It doesn't happen that way. Belief occurs, that's the miracle of God. And I'm talking about saving faith. That's always the work of God based upon the work of the Spirit, the truth of the Word, and God giving us the, the, the ability, giving us the faith. We don't even have that, the Bible says. You can't muster that up through sensationalism. Not true faith, and yet some people will think that they have that because they think they've seen a miracle. Or that God uh, done some particular physical manifestation in their life. There's a whole group of people that believe that nowadays. No, it's that true belief is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Word of God and not sensationalism. And yet Christ manifested Himself through miracles, did He not? I mean, even when John the Baptist, well, later in chapter 11, John said, hey... <laughs> Is he the one or do we wait for somebody else? How did Christ respond to him? He said, go back and tell John how you know, the lame walk and the dumb see and how to the poor the gospel is preached. In other words, he's doing, the emphasis there, he's doing what the Old Testament said Messiah would do. That's the emphasis. It focuses upon the Word of God, not just the miracles themselves. Not at all. So that's what we have. We'll finish this up and we'll be done just before. We won't get to the third temptation today. You've got the children of Israel after witnessing the plagues of Egypt and the miraculous provision from the Lord in the desert. Just think of all that. What did they do later? They grumbled. They, they complained. Exodus chapter 7 through 11. They see all these things happening. And then 14 through 17 is just a list of whining and sniveling and carrying on. You brought us out here to kill us. We'd have been better off if we'd have stayed in Egypt. Really? Focusing upon the wrong things. This is human nature. And I can't help but, again, you know, I know I've done this, but I've got to bring it into context here with, with Lazarus. I mean, this is Jesus arguably... His most notable miracle. The guy's been dead four days, undisputed. He stinks. He's, he's in the grave. 
That happened. Dead four days. And he brings him out. In, wrapped in the clothes. It says that many believed. Genuinely believed. Many of the pre- pre- priests <laughs> believed, it says. But how astounding is it when you get over to same chapter, John chapter 11, but you get over from verse 44 where he brings Lazarus out. By the time you get up to verse 43, it says that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him. That was the impact that the greatest miracle had on those folks. We just need to kill him. And then in John 12.10, they're also now they're going to kill Lazarus. Let's just wipe out the whole event. Let's just kill him too, it says. And then in John 12.37, it says, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Listen, don't lose sight of the fact that it is the work of the Holy Spirit of God and the blessed Word of God that moves upon a person's heart to change them eternally. Period. Now you settle that in your heart and life and it will help us evaluate and make determinations about all this plethora of things that comes into our life later that's going to challenge that truth. And you may say, well, I know that. That's settled. Careful. Careful regarding the subtleness of Satan in this regard. He's just looking for a crack in the door. That's all he wants. And he'll continue to use sensationalism. He'll continue to use, as it were, the miraculous. Of course, the Bible says in the latter days, he's going to do this to deceive many. And I did have it marked to read, and this is a good place for us to end our study today. Uh... The Olivet Discourse, you can go to Matthew 24. And let me just read 21 through 25 through chapter 24. I think I got it marked right here. He begins, he's been talking about the temple and the great tribulation. It says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, don't believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. So as to mislead if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you this in advance. And again, I say to you, because of the Word of God, we are not ignorant of His devices. We don't have to be. We can read and know the Word of God and trust that Word of God to be strong during the days of temptation because they're coming. They may be upon us. They are upon us now in some fashion. But Satan himself will continue to do his work in such a fashion.